Would you please pray with me? God of grace, God of mercy, Mother God who holds us close to your heart, help us this morning to know you better, to be loved and affirmed by you, to be transformed and challenged by you, to know ourselves as your children, to know our world as the one that is broken but on the way, with paths being made towards a place that is fair and just. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be of an accord with your kingdom, with your love, and when they aren't, help us try again tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, my daughter is 18 months old, a year and a half. Um, so she can't talk that well. She can walk decently. Uh, and she loves to cook. Loves it. Uh, or rather, I should say, she loves two really specific parts of cooking, which is the pouring stuff in, right? The, the uh, dumping uh, ingredients out, especially with oatmeal. She loves to dump the oats into the pot and the milk into the pot. And then she loves eating the oatmeal. She loves the end. Uh, the part she hates is everything else. Uh, specifically when she has dumped the stuff in the pot, she can see that it's the stuff that becomes oatmeal, and it somehow has not become her oatmeal yet. <laughs> so this happens every morning. This has happened every morning with us for a month. Uh, I hold her in my arms. She helps me pour in the milk into a pot. She helps me pour in the oats into a pot. And then I turn on the flame for it to cook for five minutes. And for those entire five minutes, she slaps my arm and goes, ut, 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 because she cannot stand that the oatmeal doesn't exist yet. <laughs> We're looking right at it, right? I am looking at the thing that I want to eat. Why can't I eat it? She cannot understand. <laughs> she cannot understand that cooking takes time and that things don't happen immediately. It drives her out of her tiny mind, right? Um, she can't take the in-between time. She can't take the middle time. Uh, why does it exist? Why, once I see the thing that I want, doesn't it happen in front of me? Uh, and I have been making fun of her a little bit for this to my family members to process my frustration, right? Uh, but I realize she's not the only one who acts like that, maybe. Um, who starts a thing and then immediately focuses on the end of the thing, forgetting about the middle, forgetting about the in-between. Uh, I have always had a tendency to do this, especially when I was in school. Um, you know, I felt like at the end of high school, I focused so, so much on what I was going to do after I graduated, on where I was going to work. Um, and I, I focused and I picked and I was so focused on the future. And then um, I picked what I was going to do during that year. And then all of a sudden, as, as soon as I started that year, all I could think about was where I was going to go to college, right? And I just focused on the future and where I was going to go to college. And maybe that would be the end of focusing on the future. Maybe I would be in the present. But no, once I had chosen where I was going to go to college, all I could think about was what I was going to do after I graduated. I would skip in my mind from the beginning to the end. At the beginning of every school, at the beginning of every job, at the beginning of every relationship, um, where is this going, right? What is the end point? What happens next? What is the next step? It was so hard for me, uh, is still hard for me, 
to stay in the middle part, <laughs> in the part that is actually my life. Of not knowing what comes next, I try and focus on the next big milestone, the next big thing, um, the thing that I can predict or shape or make that will tell me about what my life has been, rather than living the life that I am living. I thought about this this week. Uh, some of you, along with me, may have seen online or on your Facebook page somewhere uh, the video of uh, Ellen receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from yeah. President Barack Obama. Um, beautiful tears in her eyes. <laughs> uh, and his speech, yes, yay, we'll clap for Ellen. Um, and in his speech, he said some things uh, that I thought were really compelling about her bravery in coming out when she did, about what a different time it was for her to come out about how much she risked, but also how much she was punished for the risks that she took, that she didn't work, really, for years. Um, and that now that she is successful, and now that she is well-known, and now that she is beloved, people forget about how hard it was for a really long time, and about how um, nobody really knew whether she would ever recover from coming out when she did, or if it just would have been this act of bravery and honesty uh, that shaped the rest of her life in a way that would be difficult only. Um, that there was a time when it, it, it wasn't sure that things would work out for her. And it occurred to me that when um, people tell the story of Ellen in the future, right, uh, when people talk about her in the history books of late of uh, daytime hosts or of uh, pop culture historians, they're going to jump from when she came out to this moment, right? They're going to jump from um, an act of bravery to the height of her success and her honor, and they're going to leave out the middle part, <laughs> the part where she didn't know whether it was going to work out um, where she didn't know what the end of the story was going to be, or if the end of the story was going to be beautiful, or happy, um, or difficult, or sad. And that middle part is a huge part of her life. <laughs> the middle part where she kept trying, where she kept the faith, where she kept going out for jobs, where she um, continued to be faithful to who she was as a person, and to say that honesty mattered more than success the days and the years that that took, they're gonna leave that part out when they jump from the beginning to the end. And I think that that part, as profound and beautiful as this moment was, might be even more important. We meet God um, and God's people in some moments that are a lot like these moments. When we read Isaiah, as Angel so beautifully read this morning, um, Isaiah 40. Isaiah is one of the most read books of the Bible, most influential. It's quoted all the time throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. Um, it's quoted within the Hebrew Bible. It's something I know I read all the time when I need uh, conviction <laughs> or hope. Uh, the prophet Isaiah has such a strong sense both of the ways in which we fail as a people the need to be more just and more righteous, but also the ever-presence of God and hope in the midst of 
how terrible things can look. And we meet God in Isaiah 40 saying, Comfort, comfort my people. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. It's a vision. It's a profound vision of how things will be. Um, and, and that's a lot of what this book is, is assessment of where the people have gone wrong and of the dangers that they face, but also a vision of how beautiful things will be. But sometimes we forget that what it's actually about is how we're supposed to live in the middle of those two things. Isaiah isn't promising us that that vision will come to pass um, tomorrow because it was written a really long time ago, and that's not what happened for the people who first read it, right? That they read this vision of the path to God, of the mountains being made low, of the valleys being made high so that all would be equal and all would be together, and then it happened. <laughs> the vision was set so that we could learn how to live towards it, not so that we could just sit and wait um, for it to happen. Make straight, right? Do <laughs> help to make this pathway in your life. That is what the middle part is for. Isaiah was written um, by probably multiple people in multiple places and times. Uh, the first part was written by a guy named Isaiah in the 8th century um, when the people of Israel could see breathing down their necks the Neo-Assyrian Empire coming towards them. They could see domination coming towards them. They could see oppression on its way, that they were about to be taken over, um, that things were going to be taken away from them, um, that, that life was going to get harder and more terrible. Uh, and uh, some scholars, right, there's almost never agreement when it comes to the Bible. This is one of the magical things about it. <laughs> uh, draw the dividing line for when that part of Isaiah uh, stops and the new part of Isaiah written by a new person begins at this place in Isaiah 40, when hundreds of years later, after the people had been taken over, after the people had been sent into exile, forced to leave their homes, um, forced to live in a place that was unfamiliar to them by a whole new empire, the Babylonians, right? Not even the same empire that was screwing with them in the eighth century. Um, that after centuries and generations of that, the second part of Isaiah came from a writer who saw in the first part of Isaiah, who saw in its promises and its vision and its hope, a reflection of their people's experience at the end of exile, when they saw that they might be let back into Jerusalem. This time, comfort, comfort my people, comes when they have been kicked out and, and a king is saying to them that they might be able to come home, that they might be able to make a new life. Um, and so it's a time of great anticipation and great joy, but also great nervousness. Because they know that what happened once can happen again. 
And us reading it now, of course, we know for sure <laughs> that what happened once will happen again, right? That um, slavery in Egypt and that exodus was not the end of oppression. That domination by the Assyrians was not, uh, and, and their fall was not the end of oppression. That exile into Babylon and return to Jerusalem was not the end of oppression. Um, that in fact it still exists. <laughs> We experience it all the time. <laughs> we experience pain and injustice, both of a personal and a communal nature all the time, that pain and suffering didn't end. Um, we know that they were right to be nervous. But I think they were also right to be hopeful. <laughs> because even though they skipped over it, even though they skipped over it, um, the truth is that it's really important what you do in the middle times, in the in-between times, in the times when you aren't sure that the story is going to end well. Between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40, there were generations of people who lived out of their home, who lived not knowing if they would ever be allowed to return, who lived not knowing whether their story would end the way that they hoped it would end, that joy would come again, that happiness would be real, but they lived, <laughs> right? They didn't give up. They continued to uh, make meals and make children and make songs <laughs> and to dance and to play and to tell stories. The middle part wasn't what God intends for us, I don't think. God never intends for us to live in pain and injustice, but sometimes we do. <laughs> sometimes we live in the middle part where we don't know if our story will turn out how we want, whether it's about something small as whether we'll get the job we hope for, whether we'll recover from the illness we hope to heal from, or something big, like whether our people and our place will be a place of righteousness or not. A lot of us live in these in-between times, <laughs> the 40 years in the wilderness, the 40 days on the boat. And those times aren't times to be written off. Those times aren't times to say, oh, well, we'll just wait for the end of them, right? We'll just wait for God to make it better because God will eventually. There are times when we can continue to live to find life and to find resurrection um, in the midst of the muddy, messy part. The part where we don't know what happens next because that is what the people have always done. This scripture appears to say two really different things, right? It says that people are like grass. People are like flowers. They bloom for a moment and they fade away. Their lives are short in the scheme of things. We have short lives in the scheme of things. We pass away. Um, and you would think that means that we are meaningless, right? That uh, who cares? It's only moments. But it also says that the word of our God who made us endures forever and that we have been called to bring good news and to make pathways in the desert. Even when we feel like we're in the wilderness, there is work to be done. There are paths to be found, there are visions to be held, there are steps to take forward. There are things we can do being faithful to the God who always endures, being faithful to the values we hope to live by, even when it feels like we're in a wild or a confusing time. 
you might not know what comes next. You might not know what the end of your story is. But whatever time you are living in, however things are right now, you have a voice that can cry in the wilderness. You have a body that can make a path. You have a heart that can see this vision of a time when we will all be well and be a part of love and be a part of mercy and be a part of justice. And those are gifts. Those are gifts that we can live with and live on and live through. Um, it's certainly not the kind of injustice that the Israelites were experiencing. It's certainly not the kind of injustice that Ellen experienced. But when I think of the wilderness times, <laughs> of how they don't just have to be times of pain, but times of creativity, times of lack of knowledge, but times of new life, um, I think of an advent that I had several years ago. An advent, for those who don't know, because it's kind of a funny word and not everybody grows up in a church that celebrates advent. Advent is the season of the four weeks before Christmas where we count down, where we count down to the arrival of a Messiah who changes the world, to God breaking in to earth, to human life, um, and where we count down to God coming to us in a form that is dramatically different than we ever expected, <laughs> right? Um, and we, we count down because part of our job is to anticipate, to wait with joy and with hope, uh, to live in what's called the already, not yet, the belief of what will be without knowing it quite. Um, and I had an advent a couple years ago where I lived already, not yet, every day <laughs> because I had had uh, a personal crisis, a basically mental breakdown that was a long time in coming. I had had uh, clinical depression for a while. Not that I would have called it that. I would have called it, oh, you know, I get sad sometimes. <laughs> I feel guilty sometimes. Um, but it had gotten to a point when I was in school where I was crying every day where I couldn't move forward in my life, where the people around me were scared for me. Um, that they were telling me, like, not everybody feels like that all the time. Not everybody has to live this way. And so I had finally asked somebody for help in a way that I had never done before. Um, and I was talk in talk therapy, and I was telling people about my feelings for the first time, about how much it hurt, how painful it felt, how in the wilderness I felt, and how confused I felt. Um, and among many other things, one of the things they did was prescribe me some medication, <laughs> an antidepressant that I started taking for the first time. And they told me that it probably wouldn't start working for somewhere between three to six weeks. And I started taking it right at the end of November. <laughs> and so every day of Advent, I was basically just praying that it would start to work. Every day, I was waiting for these pills to kick in. <laughs> Every day, I was hoping that they would be the solution, that they would fix this pain, that they would heal my heart, and that I wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. Um, and for days and days and weeks and weeks, uh, it, it didn't feel like that was going to happen, but I trusted that it had happened for other people. <laughs> I trusted my doctor, I trusted my friends, and I kept taking them each day. And eventually, 
there were a few more hours each day where I wasn't in tears. <laughs> Eventually, there were a few more hours each day um, where I wasn't going over in my head every single thing that made me feel guilty and terrible and nervous and anxious. Um, and by the end of those six weeks, I wasn't perfect, right? I wasn't the human that I wanted to be. I wasn't free of suffering or pain or challenge, but things were much, much better. And here's the thing. <laughs> it is really tempting for me to look back on that advent of waiting, <laughs> of waiting to know Jesus's birth in my life, of waiting to know transformation, of waiting to know healing, and jump from day one today it worked. But the thing is, most of the stuff I rely on now to feel like a whole person is the stuff that I discovered while I was waiting in that time, not knowing whether the pills were going to work or not. It was learning um, to be honest with my friends and family about what I was feeling and where I was at. It was learning to ask for help both from God and from my church and the people around me, rather than assuming that I need to take care of everything by myself. It was learning for the first time um, to change my pattern of life so that rest was a part of it, uh, so that weakness wasn't the worst thing that I could possibly admit. All of those things, the parts that I did, the paths that I made, the paths that I discovered during the waiting time, <laughs> during the wilderness time, those are the things that I depend on now, and those were the things that I found when I didn't know for sure whether or not those pills were gonna kick in, <laughs> whether or not the end of the story was gonna look how I hoped it would look. And that's always what following Jesus is like. We are a people who are still waiting, like the shepherds and the oppressed people and the sad people and the hurt people did thousands of years ago when they waited for a Messiah to come, we are waiting for a Messiah to come again. But we're not just waiting. We are waiting and making a path. We are waiting and being love. We are waiting and fighting for justice. We are waiting and being there for each other. We are saying things aren't how they are supposed to be, and also we will live, and also we will make, and also we will create, and also we will find, and also we will be, and there is much to be found in that, even if it doesn't feel good or great or how it's supposed to be all the time. The people listening to Isaiah uh, didn't know whether what he said was going to come to pass, didn't know whether it was actually going to be all okay when they entered back into Jerusalem, but they did know that if they committed to faithfulness, to following God no matter what, to loving each other no matter what, to making those paths towards wholeness no matter what, it would be better than it was. And the middle times might teach us something that we could never have imagined if we just jumped from point A to point OK. So embrace your middle times. Embrace your present, whatever it holds. And maybe you'll find God there. Because that's where God has most often been, is in the hard parts, is in the wilderness, is in the middle parts. And those middle parts are ours to live. Amen?